Chapter 9, Part 3 of the American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The American Language by H. L. Mencken. Chapter 9. Miscellanea. Part 3. The Future of the Language. The Great Jacob Grimm, the founder of comparative philology, hazarded the guess more than three-quarters of a century ago that English would one day become the chief language of the world, and perhaps crowd out several of the then principal idioms altogether. In wealth, wisdom, and strict economy, he said, none of the other living languages can vie with it. At that time the guess was bold, for English was still in fifth place, with not only French and German ahead of it, but also Spanish and Russian. In 1801, according to Michael George Mulhall, the relative standing of the five in the number of persons using them was as follows. French, 31,450,000. Russian, 30,770,000. German, 30,320,000. Spanish, 26,190,000. English, 20,520,000. The population of the United States was then but little more than 5 million. But in 20 years, it had nearly doubled, and thereafter it increased steadily and enormously. And by 1860, it was greater than that of the United Kingdom. Since that time, the majority of English-speaking persons in the world have lived on this side of the water. Today there are nearly three times as many as in the United Kingdom, and nearly twice as many as in the whole British Empire. This great increase in the American population, beginning with the great immigrations of the 30s and 40s, quickly lifted English to fourth place among the languages, and then to third, to second, and to first. When it took the lead, the attention of philologists was actively directed to the matter, and in 1868, one of them, a German named Brackebusch, first seriously raised the question whether English was destined to obliterate certain of the older tongues. Footnote. Long before this, the general question of the relative superiority of various languages had been debated in Germany. In 1796, the Berlin Academy offered a prize for the best essay on the ideal of a perfect language. It was won by one Jenisch, with a treatise bearing the sonorous title of a philosophico-critical comparison and estimate of fourteen of the ancient and modern languages of Europe, that is, Greek, Latin, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, French, German, Dutch, English, Danish, Swedish, Polish, Russian, and Lithuanian. End footnote. Brackebush decided against, on various philological grounds, none of them sound. His own figures, as the following table from his dissertation shows, were against him. English, 60 million. 
German, 52 million, Russian, 45 million, French, 45 million, Spanish, 40 million, this in 1868. Before another generation had passed, the lead of English, still because of the great growth of the United States, was yet more impressive, as the following figures for 1890 show. English, 111,100,000. German, 75,200,000. Russian, 75,000,000. French, 51,200,000. Spanish, 42,800,000. Italian, 33,400,000. Portuguese, 13,000,000. Today the figures exceed even these. They show that English is now spoken by two and a half times as many persons as spoke it at the close of the American Civil War, and by nearly eight times as many as spoke it at the beginning of the 19th century. No other language has spread in any such proportions. Even German, which is next on the list, shows but a fourfold gain since 1801, or just half that of English. The number of persons speaking Russian, despite the vast extension of the Russian Empire during the last century of the Tsars, has little more than tripled, and the number speaking French has less than doubled. But here are the figures for 1911. English, 160 million. German, 130 million. Russian, 100 million. French, 70 million. Spanish, 50 million. Italian, 50 million. Portuguese, 25 million. Japanese, perhaps, should follow French. It is spoken by 60 million persons. But Chinese may be disregarded, for it is split into half a dozen mutually unintelligible dialects, and shows no sign of spreading beyond the limits of China. The same may be said of Hindustani, which is the language of 100 million inhabitants of British India. It shows wide dialectical variations, and the people who speak it are not likely to spread. But English is the possession of a race that is still pushing in all directions, and wherever that race settles, the existing languages tend to succumb. Thus, French, despite the passionate resistance of the French Canadians, is gradually decaying in Canada. In all the newly settled regions, English is universal. And thus, Spanish is dying out in our own southwest, and promises to meet with severe competition in some of the nearer parts of Latin America. The English control of the sea has likewise carried the language into far places. There is scarcely a merchant ship captain on deep water, of whatever nationality, who does not find some acquaintance with it necessary, and it has become, in debased forms, the lingua franca of Oceanica and the Far East generally. Three-fourths of the world's male matter, says E. H. Babbitt, is now addressed in English, and more than half of the world's newspapers are printed in English. Footnote. Babbitt predicts that by the year 2000, English will be spoken by 1,100,000,000 persons, as against 500,000,000 speakers of Russian, 300,000,000 of Spanish, 160,000,000 of German, 
and sixty million of French. End footnote. Brackebush, in the speculative paper just mentioned, came to the conclusion that the future domination of English would be prevented by its unphonetic spelling, its grammatical decay, and the general difficulties that a foreigner encounters in seeking to master it. The simplification of its grammar, he said, is the commencement of dissolution, the beginning of the end, and its extraordinary tendency to degenerate into slang of every kind is the foreshadowing of its approaching dismemberment. But in the same breath, he was forced to admit that the greater development it has obtained was the result of this very simplification of grammar. And an inspection of the rest of his reasoning quickly shows its unsoundness, even without an appeal to the plain facts. The spelling of a language, whether it be phonetic or not, has little to do with its spread. Very few men learn it by studying books. They learn it by hearing it spoken. As for grammatical decay, it is not a sign of dissolution, but a sign of active life and constantly renewed strength. To the professional philologist, perhaps, it may sometimes appear otherwise. He is apt to estimate languages by looking at their complexity. The Greek aorist elicits his admiration because it presents enormous difficulties and is inordinately subtle. But the object of language is not to bemuse grammarians, but to convey ideas. And the more simply it accomplishes that object, the more effectively it meets the needs of an energetic and practical people, and the larger its inherent vitality. The history of every language of Europe, since the earliest days of which we have record, is a history of simplifications. Even such languages as German, which still cling to a great many exasperating inflections, including the absurd inflection of the article for gender, are less highly inflected than they used to be and are proceeding slowly but surely toward analysis. The fact that English has gone further along that road than any other civilized tongue is not a proof of its decrepitude, but a proof of its continued strength. Brought into free competition with another language, say German or French or Spanish, it is almost certain to prevail, if only because it is vastly easier that is, as a spoken language, to learn. The foreigner, essaying it, indeed, finds his chief difficulty not in mastering its forms, but in grasping its lack of forms. He doesn't have to learn a new and complex grammar. What he has to do is to forget grammar. Once he has done so, the rest is a mere matter of acquiring a vocabulary, he can make himself understood given a few nouns, pronouns, verbs, and numerals, without troubling himself in the slightest about accidents. Me, see, she is bad English, perhaps, but it would be absurd to say that it is obscure, and on some not-too-distant tomorrow it may be very fair American. Essaying in inflected language the beginner must go into the matter far more deeply before he may hope to be understood. 
Bradley in the Making of English shows clearly how German and English differ in this respect, and how great is the advantage of English. In the latter, the verb sing has but eight forms, and of these, three are entirely obsolete, one is obsolescent, and two more may be dropped out without damage to comprehension. In German, the corresponding verb singen has no less than sixteen forms. How far English has proceeded toward the complete obliteration of inflections is shown by such barbarous forms of it as pigeon English and beach Lamar, in which the final step is taken without appreciable loss of clarity. The pigeon English verb is identical in all tenses. Go stands for both went and gone. Makey is both make and made. In the same way, there is no declension of the pronoun for case. My is thus I, me, mine, and our own, my. No belong my is, it is not mine. A crude construction, of course, but still clearly intelligible. Chinamen learn pidgin English in a few months, and savages in the South Seas master Beach Lamar almost as quickly. And a white man, once he has accustomed himself to either, finds it strangely fluent and expressive. He cannot argue politics in it, nor dispute upon transubstantiation, but for all the business of every day it is perfectly satisfactory. As we have seen in chapters 5 and 6, the American dialect of English has gone further along the road thus opened ahead than the mother dialect, and is moving faster. For this reason, and because of the fact that it is already spoken by a far larger and more rapidly multiplying body of people than the latter, it seems to me very likely that it will determine the final form of the language. For the old control of English over American to be reasserted is now quite unthinkable. If the two dialects are not to drift apart entirely, English must follow in Americans' tracks. This yielding seems to have begun. The exchanges from American into English grow steadily larger and more important than the exchanges from English into American. John Richard Green, the historian, discerning the inevitable half a century ago, expressed the opinion, amazing and unpalatable then, that the Americans were already the main branch of the English people. It is not yet wholly true. A cultural timorousness yet shows itself. There is still a class which looks to England as the Romans, long looked to Greece but it is not the class that is shaping the national language. It is not the class that is carrying it beyond the national borders. The Americanisms that flood the English of Canada are not borrowed from the dialects of New England loyalists and fashionable New Yorkers, but from the common speech that has its sources in the native and immigrant proletariat and that displays its gaudiest freightage in the newspapers. The impact of this flood is naturally most apparent in Canada, 
whose geographical proximity and common interests completely obliterate the effects of English political and social dominance. By an order in council, passed in 1890, the use of the redundant you in such words as honor and labor is official in Canada, but practically all the Canadian newspapers omit it. In the same way the American flat A has swept whole sections of the country, an American slang is everywhere used, and the American common speech prevails almost universally in the newer provinces. More remarkable is the influence that American has exerted upon the speech of Australia and upon the crude dialects of Oceanica and the Far East. One finds such obvious Americanisms as tomahawk, boss, bush, canoe, go finish, meaning to die, and pickaninny in Beach Lamar, and more of them in pigeon English. And one observes a very large number of American words and phrases in the slang of Australia. The Australian common speech in pronunciation and intonation resembles Cockney English, and a great many Cockneyisms are in it. But despite the small number of Americans in the Antipodes, it has adopted of late so many Americanisms that a Cockney visitor must often find it difficult. Among them are the verb and verb phrases to beef, to biff, to bluff, to boss, to break away, to chase one's self, to chew the rag, to chip in, to fade away, to get in the neck, to back and fill, to plug along, to get sore, to turn down and to get wise. The substantives, dope, boss, fake, creak, knockout drops, and push, in the sense of crowd, the adjectives hitched, in the sense of married, and tough, as before luck, and the adverbial phrases for keeps and going strong. Here, in direct competition with English locutions, and with all the advantages on the side of the latter, American is making steady progress. This American language, says a recent observer, seems to be much more of a pusher than the English, for instance, after eight years' occupancy of the Philippines, it was spoken by 800,000 or 10% of the natives, while after an occupancy of 150 of India by the British, 3 million or 1% of the natives speak English. I do vouch for the figures. They may be inaccurate in detail, but they at least state what seems to be a fact. Behind that fact are phenomena which certainly deserve careful study, and above all, study divested of unintelligent prejudice. The attempt to make American uniform with English has failed ingloriously. The neglect of its investigation is an evidence of snobbishness that is a folly of the same sort. It is useless to dismiss the growing peculiarities of the American vocabulary and of grammar and syntax in the common speech as vulgarisms beneath serious notice. Such vulgarisms have a way of entrenching themselves and gathering dignity 
as they grow familiar. There are but few forms in use, says Lounsbury, which, judged by a standard previously existing, would not be regarded as gross barbarisms. Each language, in such matters, is a law unto itself, and each vigorous dialect, particularly if it be spoken by millions, is a law no less. It would be as wrong, says Seiji, to use thou for the nominative, thee in the Somersetshire dialect, as it is to say thee art, instead of you are, in the Queen's English. All the American dialect needs, in the long run, to make even pedagogues acutely aware of it, is a poet of genius to venture into it, as Chaucer ventured into the despised English of his day, and Dante into the Tuscan dialect, and Luther in his translation of the Bible into peasant German. Walt Whitman made a half-attempt and then drew back. Lowell, perhaps, also heard the call, but too soon. The Irish dialect of English, vastly less important than the American, has already had its interpreters, Douglas Hyde, John Millington Singhi, and Augusta Gregory, and with what extraordinary results we all know. Here we have writing that is still indubitably English, but English rid of its artificial restraints, and broken to the less self-conscious grammar and syntax of a simple and untutored folk. Singy, in his preface to the Playboy of the Western World, tells us how he got his gypsy phrases. Through a chink in the floor of the old Wicklow house where I was staying, that let me hear what was being said by the servant girls in the kitchen, there is no doubt, he goes on, that, in the happy ages of literature, striking and beautiful phrases were as ready to the storyteller's or the playwright's hand as the rich cloaks and dresses of his time. It is probable that when the Elizabethan dramatist took his inkhorn and sat down to his work, he used many phrases that he had just heard as he sat at dinner from his mother or his children. The result, in the case of the Neo-Celts, is a dialect that stands incomparably above the tight English of the grammarians. A dialect so naive, so pliant, so expressive, and adeptly managed, so beautiful that even purists have begun to succumb to it, and it promises to leave lasting marks upon English style. The American dialect has not yet come to that stage. Insofar as it is apprehended at all, it is only in the sense that Irish English was apprehended a generation ago, that is, as something uncouth and comic. But that is the way the new dialects always come in, through a drumfire of cackles. Given the poet, there may suddenly come a day when our therns and woulda hads will take on the barbaric stateliness of the peasant locutions of old moria in riders to the sea they seem grotesque and absurd today because the folks who use them seem grotesque and absurd 
but that is too facile logic and under it is a false assumption in all human beings if only understanding be brought to the business dignity will be found and that dignity cannot fail to reveal itself soon or late in the words and phrases with which they make known their high hopes and aspirations and cry out against the intolerable meaningless of life end of chapter 9 part 3 end of the american language by h l mencken